0: Oh, do i love that theme music who doesn't love that theme music what loyal steamer doesn't get so excited every week when when you hear that stand-up bass which means it's time to uh, come inside the steam room the second most popular podcast in the history of media there you go i have no statistical background behind making a statement like that you just Just say with
1: confidence, Ernie, America, believe you? That's the key to the line. Say a lie with confidence.
0: Well, it is the second most popular in in the entire, actually in the universe. And we're happy that you're loyal steamers and happy that you're you're with us today. Ernie Johnson, Charles Barkley, and we've got a, we'll have a couple of guests. Special Uh, guests. Yeah, because of all the talk about uh, The Last Dance, which has been an amazing documentary to watch, this whole Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls thing. And. Only two episodes remaining uh, on Sunday night, but Mamad Rashad, uh, whose uh, years at NBC, you know, and his friendship with with Michael have extended almost forty years, and then Tim Grover, his trainer, uh, so you've seen them both a lot. You're going to hear from both of them here on uh, the Steam Room before it's all over today. That's a that's a dynamite show right there, Charles Barkley. That's, that's a it dynamite is. show. Uh, yes. And, and then once again, we begin with your favorite phrase, and that is, first of all... First of all, you know you have a lot of money when you get hunting nut Cheerios. I've had to regulate Cheerios. First of all, you know anybody ride a motorcycle who makes
1: millions of dollars is an idiot. First of all, zero plus zero is zero. Well, you know, Ernie, my first of all is just going to be about sports. Clearly, we're all going to try to play sports, whether it's the NBA, NHL... Major League Baseball, uh, I just wanna wish all the jocks nothing but great health, man. I really am hopeful that we all try to play, that we're all safe, nobody contracts the, the COVID virus and pass it to somebody in their family. And I understand, I, I know there's so much money at stake and. You know, we want to say sports aren't about money, but sports have a a lot to do with money. Uh, But I just want to wish all the jocks and their families great health. Let's try to get through the NBA playoffs, apparently. Let's try to get through the NHL playoffs. Major League Baseball look like they're going to have an 80-game season. And I just wish, I just hope everything go perfect, man, Uh, and nobody gets sick. But obviously, that's probably going to happen, but I just hope nobody dies because this thing is the worst thing I've ever seen in my lifetime. I think in in our lifetime, this is the worst thing. and We've lost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Many, many more have tested positive and overcame it. We've been working our doctors and nurses to the bones. Thank them. But I just want to wish all the players, because like I say, I'm getting the impression that we're going to play I just want to wish
0: everybody good health. Hey, Chuckster, if you were still playing, would it be an immediate, yes, I'll I, I'll go back and play, or would you need some type of other assurances right now?
1: That's a great question, Ernie. Uh, I need a full plan. There's so much stuff going on out there right now. Uh, these guys are going to stay in the hotel for two months. I'm like, well, first of all, if I have to, I might have to do that, but What about the maids? They're going home every day. What about everybody who works in room service? Because I know that if I'm a player, I can't be going around to restaurants because I got to worry about all the stuff that's at the restaurant. Like, they're going to have to give me some solid answers. It just scary me because, you know, you looked at the MMA fighter last week. So the MMA fighter got pulled out of the match, but two of his corner men... Tested positive. Well, did th- they go home to their families after the practice every day? I mean, that that's a legitimate question. And how are these players going to sit on the bench beside each other? You know, people said we're going to practice social distancing. Well, in the NBA and all these other sports, you can't practice social distancing. I'm standing beside a guy at the free throw line. We're not social distancing. Guys are throwing me the ball. You're guarding somebody. I'm. I mean, so it's so much stuff that I need to know the answer to before, like I'm all in. Yeah, I want to play. Like I'm guarding guys, and we're sweating and breathing on each other. Are we all staying at the same hotel? I'm not gonna say yes to plan until y'all have everything written down, and also. Would I sign a waiver? I mean, it's so many questions that we nobody knows to answer to. And like I say, it's gotta be an individual thing. And another question: let's talk about integrity. If Giannis, LeBron, Anthony Davis, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, if any of those guys get the virus. Do we sequester their whole team? We can't stop the playoffs once the playoffs started. So do that team have to sacrifice that playoff round? These are fair, legitimate questions that I don't think anybody knows to answer to. We can take all the precautions we want to, but we just don't
0: know. And that scares the hell out of me. That is a great way to start this edition of the Steam Room with a lot of the same questions we're wrestling with for weeks. And then we'll just see Chuckster because sometimes you get a little hopeful. You hear a report come out about a meeting or about, you know, board of governors, you know, coming out saying maybe we can do this, but, or major league baseball saying, Hey, let's pass this proposal to the players and see what they think. And, but man, that the, the great unknown is still out there.
1: Another concern of mine, Ernie, you know, the NBA, we've kicked the can down the road a few times at some point you have to make a decision because this thing is not going to be over next week or next month and another thing that bothers me I think it's really going to suck without fans the fans are an intricate part of our game so man it's just a bunch of unknowns like
0: you said you are listening to the steam room the world's second most popular podcast yes Um, said with conviction and smile Ernie (laughs) I'll let the the viewing and the listening public uh, make the decision on whether it's the second or first. Those are really your only options. It's either the most popular or the second most popular. We await the, uh, the poll results. And we'll be back talking to Ahmad Rashad when we come back on The Steam Room. We welcome you back to The Steam Room. Ernie Johnson and Charles Barkley. Special guest. Wow. Look at you. Jumping right in there to introduce special, our special guest. Special guest Ernie. Yeah, I mean to tell you, we've had some great guests on this podcast, boys and girls. If you haven't been listening uh, and and now look who's walking into the steam room and please keep your towel on. Amabh Rashad. <laughs> it's so <laughs> nice to be with you fellas. It's just wonderful. <laughs> Give me something to do
2: because I'm bored as hell.
0: <laughs> I, you know it's been so long since I've seen you on TV Amon. I guess it's been about three days three four days I, I see you every Sunday uh and and man has it been fun to watch that uh that last dance and and, and I'm look you are featured prominently and then and, and for a good reason man because your relationship with Michael uh, you know they don't get much tighter than that when's the first time you met him I met Michael, uh, the first time I had sort of gotten even
2: involved in who Michael Jordan was is John McEnroe told me about this guy. He said, you got to watch this guy in North Carolina. You got to watch this guy. So that's when I first saw him. That was in like 1983, I think. But NBC had just gotten basketball. And what they wanted to do, they were going to have this new show called Inside Stuff. I was going to end up doing basketball. So we went out and and, um, televised Magic Johnson's Midsummer Night Dream charity game in the summer. Now, this charity game wasn't like – it was way better than the All-Star game because these guys actually played. I mean, it wasn't – it was like, yeah, we got a charity going, but they were serious about who was going to win, who was going to play. And so we did that game. I met Michael then. We exchanged phone numbers and just became really, really close friends over the over the years.
1: You know, Ahmad my- – we all been around a long time and, you know, obviously it was a long time ago, but this last dance thing has brought back so many great memories. Uh, What's been the best memory that you kind of like, I
2: forgot about that. You know, uh, there's been so many things. And I sit and watch the thing. and I think the first thing that comes to mind is I forgot how really good he was. You know, (laughs) I I mean, I really, I mean, I, I was there the whole time. You know, I was there for Charles's whole career also. And you forget how good these guys were. They were at a level, and it was a whole league that was at a level that was it had not reached there again. And so I, re- I was telling somebody the other day that during the playoff games, we would go in a room after the games uh, late and smoke cigars and talk about the game and talk about all the plays. And I remember telling Quinn Buckner, I must've told him this like 10 times. It's like, Hey man, there's no way that Michael can play better than that. And then the next game he played better than that. It was just a wonderful time to be around. And as I watch it, I remember, you know what I remember most about Charles, when they beat Chicago, we were at a restaurant eating. And after I had to interview Charles at the end of the game, he said, the Lord told me that we were going to win the game. Right. And it was kind of funny. You know, we laughed about it and the whole thing and the game was over and you know, Charles is, Always happy-go-lucky. Just okay. We got another one to play, and then that night we were eating in a restaurant. I know you remember this, Charles. We're eating in a restaurant in a back room. Michael, myself, a bunch of other people, and Charles walked in, and Charles was making just making jokes, like you know, hey, what's happening, guys? Yeah, we got y'all, and this kind of thing, and there was nothing said, (laughs) nothing. So Charles realized that okay, I guess this ain't a fun room. I'm gonna leave the room. (laughs) So, he so that, turned, that wasn't a fun room. Yeah, it wasn't a fun room. <laughs> but those are the kind of things that I that I remember, and it was, um, it was just a wonderful time.
1: Well, obviously, clearly, Michael's a bad loser. That's number one. <laughs> it, 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 you know, Ahmad, you've been in this thing a long time. I've been in it a long time. I've only been around two athletes that people flat out lose their mind over. Mm-hmm. Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan. We were obviously, I've been around Michael when we won, playing against each other. Have, in, in your many years of being an NFL player and being a broadcast, have you ever seen the reception that Michael
2: and Tiger get around crowds? No, it's almost like, um, and I was probably 12 or 13, it's almost like Elvis Presley. And people don't remember that either. I mean, he could not go anywhere. It was like people would look at him as like he wasn't human. We didn't look at him that way. Charles yeah. and I didn't look at him that way. He was just Michael. He was just a great player and one of the guys. Yeah. But everybody on the outside looked at him. I saw, I saw, I saw in the news, I saw Shannon Sharp say that when he met Michael Jordan, he levitated, man. I mean, I went up to him <laughs> and the boy levitated. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about?
0: He levitated. It's like, yeah. I got a, I got a question for you, Ahmad. Did when you're that tight with a guy, is it ever hard to report on him? No, no, at all. Two
2: separate things. It was two separate things. And having been an athlete and having been in those sort of circumstances, reporting, you're only reporting on the game and you're reporting on whatever else. It's not like you're doing investigative reporting. And Hey, here's the thing. This is what guy's doing over there. It was all about the game. And I always kept it just there. And it was, I think what people don't really realize, I had the same relationship with Charles. I had the same relationship with Magic. I had the same relationship with Larry Bird. It was all the same thing. There was mutual respect when we spoke. And it wasn't about, they didn't have to feel like I was going to ask a question that was out of line because I knew what the subject matter was and what we were talking about. And I had friendships with all those guys. Michael and I had a special friendship. We were very, very dear friends and spoke a lot. But it wasn't too different from you know, me, Danny Ainge, was a. I had a camp. I worked at a football camp when I was in college, and Danny Ainge was one of my guys. He was 13 years old or something like that, and he was <laughs> such a little badass that he used to have to <laughs> sit with me at lunch because the other guys were beating him up. He had, like, two <laughs> brothers that were older than him, and he was, like, this little wise-ass guy, and his brothers were beating him up all the time, so I made him have lunch with me. He had to sit <laughs> with me. I was a counselor. So, so there was relationships like that that went all the way through that. So when people just first saw Danny Ainge, hell, I had known him since he was 13 years old. So it was just a different relationship that I had with all the players. You know, Ahmad,
1: I, I played against the bad boy Pistons, mm-hmm. and you, you knew it was bad. But looking at the documentary, Over Again, it's like, damn, these dudes out here really trying to hurt people. <laughs> that that actually, to me, when we're having this debate, listen, I'm not one of these old get off my lawn guys. That, that sure you are. So, uh, no, no, no. I'm not. Uh, uh, Ernie, from a common sense standpoint, a montez, He played in the NFL. I guarantee he said, yeah, I'd rather play today. You can't touch people. They're going to throw it 30 other times. You can't touch the quarterback. Everybody – and that's not to get off my long guy. That's just a fact. It's easier to play in the NFL today. Just like in the NBA, it's a lot easier today. But like I said, even though I thought about the Pistons a lot back in the day, watching Michael go through those guys, getting his butt kicked the first three times, that to me would make him – like what he went through, that's what to me makes him the GOAT.
2: I, I agree with that because he – you know, it was one of those things where you weren't. The Pistons were ruling everything. If you went in there, <laughs> you were gonna get beat up. If you tried to drive to the basket, you're gonna get three or four times, knocked down, and not get fouled, <laughs> and not there ain't gonna be no whistle blown. So it took a special kind of person to sort of beat those, and a special type of person to rally his whole team. You know, it's almost like a guy going down and getting a fight and saying, "Hey, man, we all going," and then everybody be psyched up till they all come. You know, so it was one of those things that he had raised everybody else's expectations and commitments to do what he was committed to do. I thought that was I thought that was really, really something that I admired as an athlete for him to be able to do that, knowing also the guy that I don't think it gets enough credit is Phil Jackson imagine trying to coach that team with all them weird dudes on that team. <laughs> I mean, how do you keep them guys together? You're going to say, hey, we got one more year, and you got all them different kind of personalities there. He did a wonderful job. Michael has always told me that the one thing he feels really uh, happy about or fortunate is that he had a coach-like Phil that inspired him, that actually went at him, that actually – I was watching the thing with, um, I don't know, the guard that went to Charlotte. Um, B.J. And, B.J. Armstrong. And, BJ yeah. had a, and he had the great game. I said, so what happened? He said, man, after that game, man, Phil was on me like crazy. He said, man, how in the world you let that dude – I mean, just going at him, and everybody needs that. Everybody need, you need a coach that can take you where you need to be. And so that was the guy he was trying to – Mike would say no matter how many points I scored, it would be like, okay, so well, what about your rebounds? You didn't have much rebounds. If I did this, Phil always had something to inspire him to play better – each and every night and all the way to that level that they went
0: to, which is pretty extraordinary. Ahmad, would you guys talk about, uh, or would he seek counsel, seek advice from you? I mean, if he had something going on, would he ask you your opinion? I mean, like when it came down to, he's going to try baseball. Yeah. Did you guys talk about that? Did you tell him, Oh yeah, go. Or did you say, "Ah, I don't know.
2: I said, yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's what I (laughs) (laughs) said. It's like, what you going to do? What? play baseball is like I couldn't quite figure out how that was but no we talked about everything we discussed all kinds of different things like that we would have you know a lot of times that I would spend time around him before a game we talk about this much about the game and this much about anything all kinds of stuff you know but but I as I say that I sort of had the same relationship with Charles Charles and I would talk about all kinds of stuff and you know and still go play the game and then maybe we talk about a specific player or what do you think about that guy or what do you think about this? So that was a sort of inside that I had as a reporter, is I had relationships with everybody, not only Michael. And he had the same kind of, you know, he was a human being, so he'd have the same kind of conversations that, you know, that we all had. When did you cause you guys got me hooked on cigars, when did that start? <laughs> The first championship. The first championship, because we had we got we had gotten these cigars out in um Las Vegas that had sweet tips on the end of them. Oh, so we out because you know, we weren't real cigar smokers at that time. We had these sweet cigars. And so we just sort of What, you know, what, what Swisher Sweets? No, not Swisher Sweets. It was a real <laughs> okay. No It was a real cigar, but it had a sweet tip on it. All right. And you could only get them at this place out in Las Vegas. So we always had those. And then it got to the point where I would – if uh, if I was doing a game, uh, Michael and I would – I would go to, to the arena and find a room that we could go to while he got dressed. So I'd get to the arena. He'd come and we'd go to this room. Phil Jackson would come, too, uh, and we'd go and sit down and we'd just talk, smoke a cigar, talk, laugh about uh, anything, some crazy thing in high school. Some The subject matter was different every single time, but that was, that was sort of the way – that I got prepared to do my job, and the way he got a chance to get away from everything and laugh about stuff before he went back into battle. And same with Phil. You know, you want to take this time to
1: apologize to me for yelling at me uh, when I didn't know how to smoke good cigars? So, <laughs> so Ernie. So, when I, so I started hanging out with Michael and Ahmad, <laughs> and we'd play golf and we'd smoke. So I didn't know the difference between regular cigars and great cigars. So I started playing golf with these guys but they're smoking some (laughs) of the best stuff in the world. And I was just learning how to smoke cigars. And I would take like five or six to 10 puffs and put the cigar out. And these guys would look at me like, yo man, you got to finish that cigar. That's one of the best in the world. So then they taught me, Chuck, when you become a real cigar smoker, you got to have two sets of cigars. You got to have one for the riffraff who going to take three or four puffs and put it out. And then you got to have the good stuff for real cigar smokers. And um, when when my, Ahmad yelled at me that time, I got it, Ahmad. I got stuff for the riffraff, and I got a special for the guys who know what the hell they're doing. So I appreciate that. I forgive you for yelling at me. Thanks for taking
0: us back to your days in the riffraff. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny.
2: You know, the things I had to tell tra- Charles is like, you know, these cigars we're smoking, it's about $100 a cigar. You know, you can't, like, take two puffs and throw it away. And Charles just thought it was like, he thought it was a... I thought, a, thought it was a, a Swisher Sweet. He thought it was a Swisher <laughs> Sweet. So he was like, hey, give Charles a cigar out of that other box. <laughs>
0: <laughs> here, hey, I got a, I got a question here for both of you, okay? So I'm, I'm counting up. So it's 82. Uh, so it's almost 40 years, Ahmad, you and you and MJ have had this, this bond. All right. Yeah. Going back, going back to 82. Chuck, you used to have that bond. Yes. Right. Yes. Right? yes. Do you, do you wish you had what a still has? Yes. With Michael. Yes. Then how are you going to fix it?
1: Uh, I don't know that yet, Ernie. I don't know the answer to that question, brother. I wish I could give you a, a proper answer. I don't know the answer to that question,
0: but obviously you want to fix it. I
1: would like to fix it, but you know, Michael's doing great. Uh, I'm doing great. We had a disagreement. Uh, We're probably both too stubborn. Uh, Let me rephrase it. I know we are both too stubborn. Uh, (laughs) I think, seriously, I think we're both just, we're both just jackasses to be honest with you. When it comes like, you know, Dr. Phil said this all the time.
2: Uh Uh-oh. No, 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 Ernie. He Wait, has a are gr- you getting Are you getting ready to quote Doctor Phil? Yes, he I, is. That's no, why I no, said uh-oh. no, no,
1: no, because he has a great point. Sometime he says, and I asked him. We were, actually we were in Vegas playing black blackjack one night, and I was just picking his brain because I love Doctor Phil's show. And he says he talked about a right fighter. He says most people go through life, they are hundred percent wrong but their ego says, I'm just going to ride. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. And sometimes that's got myself into trouble. I can't speak for Michael. I think there's times being a right fighter. Like I just want to prove I'm right, even when I'm wrong. And that's got me in trouble at times.
0: Ahmad, I think, see what I see in your future, Ahmad, is the Jimmy Carter role here. I can see you, with MJ on one side and Charles on the other, and you <laughs> join hands and you say, Hey, this is it's this is all over. Everybody, everybody make nice. Like,
1: we're like the Middle East now.
0: <laughs> yeah, this would be like Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin back oh, in the day. Ernie, I like Party. that. We'd have pulled them out. It is a big one. Yeah. Is a so, big one. Yeah. So, so so what are the chances and, and and Ahmad, how much thought do you think MJ gives to gives to something like this to, you know, making things right with guys who it used to be right with. I
2: think that uh, people don't realize the relationship that Charles and Michael have had over the years going way back. Yeah. Going way back to the point where I remember talking about, uh, you remember the Olympic team that, that you didn't make. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the, coach was, the coach was crazy or whatever it was. But, uh, kind of the words you're thinking of was just a prick of mine. My... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, just a and prick. so, so I right. remember Michael telling me all about that and hold like that. But you guys were such great. You were soulmates. You're very, very dear friends. And somehow it just got out of whack somewhere. But there's no telling. You can't tell me you still don't love him. And he can't tell me he still don't love you. You just got some weird. It's almost like brothers that get get into an argument. At some point you come back, but there's still family. You can say whatever you want that I know deep inside. I know both these guys as well as anybody could know them. And I know that it's only a matter of time. It's not It's not anything that's, you know, death defying. It's not anything that's that deep at all. But, you know, time of life is like that sometimes, but it ain't going to go on at some point. The other night <laughs> you know that you called me, when you called me the other night, I was sitting right next to him. Oh really? Yeah, and I was trying to put y'all on the phone. But you said some crazy
0: stuff to me and then hung the damn phone up. Come on, there's your Ahmad, there is your opportunity. It was handed to you. There was the opportunity. Your Jimmy Carter moment.
2: It's only, it's only a matter of time. I mean, they're on their own, they're two grown boys. They both know what the hell's going on, and at some point they'll get it together. But it's not like something like "I hate you" and "I hate you." That's not it at all. Never.
0: So here's—I hate to throw another question at you, but so you're sitting there with MJ. Are you watching the? Are you watching the show? Yeah, and Charles called out of the blue. So what's so so? What's MJ's? Has MJ already seen everything? Of course, yeah. he has. Yeah, we all. I've seen it too. I already but the saw whole thing. Too. Yeah. OK, so you've already watched it. You've already watched it all the way through before watching on. Yes. Like on, on like last Sunday. Uh huh. So nothing really is, is going to surprise you in that. Nothing.
3: OK.
2: But it was. But as we watched it, we just laughed about stuff. You know, We remembered, you know, you'd see a game and you would remember stuff that was around the game. I remember one a game would come on and go, hey, man, remember time we had dinner at this place and whatever is we were drinking Long Island iced teas. I never drank one of them. And we talk about that or the time that, yeah, when I came, when you had them damn shoes on, they were too small and you couldn't take them off at halftime because <laughs> your feet were bleeding. We're laughing at stuff like that. Or a game is like, oh, man, yeah, I remember that when this and that and that was happening. Or even the time when I talked about when Charles came into that room when we were having dinner, we all laughed about that. So it's, a, it's just a going back in time. And I'm sure Charles has the same thing. Oh, you yeah. sort of sit down and you look back in time and you just remember the era. You, it was a wonderful era in NBA, in the NBA. It was um, it was the coolest thing ever. There was a hip hop thing going on. It was all this and that and the other. So we sort of went through a, a reminiscing and laughing about a lot of this stuff, and then talking about you know certain guys he was playing against, or if something happened that didn't happen, it's the like, guy don't remember that, or or George Call saying he didn't remember walking by and not saying hi to him. Yeah. When he knows damn well he remember. It was too many of us at the table to watch them do it. <laughs> it's like, that's, not, that's not true he did go by that and then he paid for it but you have to as an athlete all of us try to find something to motivate us every single game michael does it to an extent that you know i've never seen but i know when i played and i was playing against a guy i was always looking for an edge i was always looking at if i read something where he said he could guard me or something he, i could sort of in my mind put it like he was disrespecting me it helped me play harder that that week. But at the end of it is, you know, you move on to the next one. But everybody, ha- everybody does that.
0: Ahmad Rashad, it has been, uh, man, it's been great catching up. And, Always. And again, your, uh, your contributions to this series have been, uh, have been awesome. And to, um, to
1: sports, Ernie, you know, he's probably not only that. I mean, and, and obviously, you know, I love him like a brother. From being a hell of a player, going into broadcasting, being successful at it. He's one of the first to ever do it. He's been a blueprint for a lot of guys. Like, he don't even know this. He was one of the reasons I was going to go to NBC. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Well, because you were the first guy who really played, that I saw play. Right. Who actually went into broadcasting. Yes. Uh, So you were like a blueprint for all of us guys. So one of the reasons I was going to go to NBC was because of you. And unfortunately, I made the mistake of going to Atlanta and uh, and TK and Mark Ladders got me drunk. And I ended up signing with TNT, which was a blessing.
0: Yeah, You're an easy date, man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that, Charles, because I always felt to myself that I was trying to be an example of other young African-Americans. Because when I first went on, there weren't many of us on TV doing anything. I was trying to set an example of something that we could all do, that you look at it and say, shoot, Amah did it, and he did it well. I want to do that too. So I was trying to make that example. And so when you tell me things like this, it just makes my heart feel good because that's what I was trying to do. That was my point to try to show that, you know, we aren't just people that just run up and down the court or run up and down the field and can only do that. There's a lot of things that we can do as young black uh, athletes that continue your life, you know, that kind of thing. So it was one of the things, it was one of those And it was like, you know, it was only going this way. It was growing the whole time. And so for you to tell that to me, that that makes my day. I really appreciate that.
0: You're welcome, my brother. Thank you. Ahmad, thanks. Great talking to you, as always. And uh, straight ahead there, kid. And keep it in the fairway.
2: Always great to see you, Ernie. Look forward to seeing you on the golf course. Charles, you can come with us, though, but don't bring your clubs. <laughs> 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 all right,
1: man. I love you.
2: Be safe. All right, peace. Love you guys. Uh, uh, Letterman. man.
1: Hey, Ernie, he's on my list, too. I'm getting all y'all back on the golf course. I'm coming out of this quarantine. I'm going to play good golf from now on. I'm letting y'all know this.
0: back here on the steam room the world's second most popular podcast ernie johnson along with charles barkley and and a special guest another special guest how can I mean, this show is just mind boggling sometimes when we're able to to wrangle these guests. And now it's Tim Grover, who was the uh, I don't know the best way, Charles, to describe, uh, you know, trainer to the elite, trainer to the stars. You know, how would you describe Tim Grover? Trainer
1: to the best bodies in sports I've ever seen. And I'm not saying even yours. No, 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 no. he I know I, I, I didn't get to work with Tim until I was over the hill. But I look at the bodies he's worked with. Uh, I'm not going to say, I'm not just saying this uh, because he's on the show. Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, I would say there's never been two players who had more perfectly proportioned bodies, strength, quickness, power, uh, that combination.
0: Uh, That's the truth. So, Tim, welcome to the STEAM Room. Please keep your towel on, and thanks for uh, taking time with us, man. We're all about, as the whole sporting world is, is about this uh, this last dance, and we've seen you featured prominently uh, in these episodes as Michael's trainer. How did this all start way back when, when you first met Michael?
3: Well, it started back in 89, so the story was Michael was tired of taking the physical abuse from the Detroit Pistons and there was a small article in a local newspaper I'm like oh yeah well why not I had already finished my master's degree in exercise science so I was like all right let me go out and write some letters so I wrote I wrote 14 letters to the Chicago and Bay. you're
0: and you're what 25 years old at this time 20
3: 24 25 25 yes 25 okay so I was like you know what let me go ahead and send the uh send these letters out. This was back then, no emails, no anything. So I wrote the one person I did not write a letter to was Michael. I was like, okay, the organization is going to be, they're going to keep an eye on him. They'll find somebody, they'll find something for him. And I get a call back a couple of days later and it's the team athletic trainer, Mark File during that time and the team physician, John Heffron. And they said, one player is interested in hiring uh, in your services. So we'd like to meet with you. So I met with them on and off for literally three months, going back and forth, going back and back and forth. They wanted to see if I knew what I was talking about, what my philosophies were, what my strategy was. And then after like a three-month process, they said one day, they like, hey, listen, we want you to meet the client at the house. And I said, all right. So they gave me the address. I, I drove up there. I rang I rang the doorbell. And this was when the, you could literally walk up to his house. I rang the doorbell and Michael Jordan answered the door. I didn't know it's gonna be you had no idea who this was yeah I was just going to an address he opened the door and I was like okay so and I, here's the thing I'm wearing a pair of converse <laughs> <laughs> so you know Charles and everyone knows how, how Michael is about the you know the brand and Nike and so forth so the first thing that comes in my head I was like okay do I take off my shoes or do I leave them on so I was like you know what I'm gonna take them off and I took them off I had a big old hole in my sock too <laughs> Way to make a good first impression. Yeah, man. exactly. <laughs> but I'm like, what's worse, going in with Congress or going in with a, pair, with a socks that have holes in it? I was like, let's go with the socks that have holes in it. Tell people exactly what your
1: program is because, you know, there's a, a gazillion trainers. Explain your working
3: out theory. My working out theory first is to make the athlete as less injury-prone as possible. That's the first thing. Everybody talks about, you know, we need them to jump higher. We need them to be stronger. We need them to be faster. Well, if you do those things, you're actually increasing the athlete's chances of becoming injured. Each sport has muscles, tendons, and ligaments, joints, that are used more frequently than others. The movement patterns of a baseball player are different than a football player, hockey player, and a basketball player. So let's address the areas that are used the most and make those things as bulletproof as possible. By just doing that alone, you automatically make the athlete better. Because what happens is funny, Charles, you know, you've played at the highest, highest level. All right. There's certain moves you do, certain jumps that you do that you don't always land on two legs sometimes you land on one you jump off of one you, you you go so there's always muscles and a side of your body that's always used more in a sport than you would think and i pay attention to those little details and i develop a program around those things okay this person lands this uh, during a practice or during a game he lands this much on his right leg he lands this much on his left leg he has a tendency to turn over his left shoulder he has a tendency to turn over his right shoulder. So you pay attention to all those details. Once you do those things, you also have to teach the athlete how to stop. Everybody teaches them how to go, but most of your injuries in sports are not on the go. They're on the plant or the stop when you're changing directions, when you're getting ready to plant to go up for a jug, go up for a jump. So programs are designed to make athletes go. So they have Ferrari engines, and they're dealing with a lower end vehicle breaks. So if you're going to have acceleration, you have to have the same, uh, the same kind of deacceleration. And that's what a lot of athletes and trainers miss out on.
0: Tim, these days with technology, obviously, I mean, everything can be charted. I mean, they can, you talk about how many miles a guy runs in the course of a game, how much ground he covers and et cetera, et cetera. Now you got to be honest with me back then the story goes that you would count Michael's steps that you would, we would watch him play and you would count his steps.
3: Yes. So what I would do is I couldn't do it at the game. We're all old enough to know what a Betamax is and what a VHS machine is. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So before I would go to the game, you get one of those tapes, you know, you can buy them. They either had two hours worth of recording, four hours or six hours worth of recording. So right before I would leave, I would set the tape, I would put it in and I would record it on the slowest speed. So, you know, at the game, obviously I can't keep looking down and keep charting down. So i at the game and watching what's going on and seeing what's happened. I would jot a few notes Then after the game, after we're done, after he's done with his uh, treatment and all this other stuff, I come home that same night. I rewatched the game. I rewatched his poor. I rewatched his portions again. Cause I never worked for the organization. So I was never privileged to be able to like, Hey, can I get a game film of just, you know, of just Michael, they were never going to do really? that. Never, yeah. that oh, yeah.
0: Even though you were, even though you were doing this for the franchise meal ticket, it was like, but don't ask for anything else.
3: Uh, Ernie. It was, it, it, it was unbelievable. But see, the one thing special about Michael was he was just like, he goes, listen, if, I start asking for these things for you, then that's going to open up the door for everybody else who has somebody, has a trainer. He goes, so I don't want to create, I don't want to create that. He goes, you know, you have the job of being able to figure this out. So I said, don't worry about it. I can figure that out. So I would literally come home, I would watch the game, and that would allow me to prepare for his workout the next day. So every time he played, and I would also ask him about what he did, what he did in practice, I would adjust the workout accordingly to how he did uh, how many minutes he played? How many steps he took? Whether he cut left? Whether he cut right? So all the stuff. So I was the original Fitbit. <laughs> Tell everybody about the Breakfast Club. Well, the Breakfast Club started with, you know, Michael. He knew certain players that he needed to rely on on a daily basis, and obviously Scotty was Scotty was one of them. So what Michael was doing, so he goes, I need to make sure Scotty's in the best condition and the best health possible. I'm going to have him work out with me during my times. And then when Ron Harper came, Ron was extremely athletic with his days in Cleveland. Then he had his injury with his ACL. My personal opinion was it wasn't done as best as it could have been done. So I went up to Michael and said, Michael, I really think I can, you know, get him close to back to where, where he was, or at least be at a performing at a high level to help you win. So he goes, go, go talk to him. I actually talked to Ron and uh, Ron said he was interested. So I told Michael, these are the people that are going to come working out. So every single morning, even on game day, and this was a crucial part, even on game day, we would work out at anywhere from 5 a.m., 6 a.m., or 7 a.m. Michael would pick the times. And all three of those individuals were there. They never missed a workout, never missed a workout. I had our core program that we would all do, but then each individual had different needs. And that was the one thing that I did. You can't take a team of 12, 15 individuals and train them all the same way. Everybody has individual needs. So my programs were designed for the individuals. I would work them out and then I would pay attention to all the individual needs then afterwards they would go upstairs they'd have breakfast you know talk some trash do whatever they need to do watch some game film or whatever and they would go to they would go to practice it, it was a year round process from the off season basically started from labor day all the way until the last last game of the championship run Wouldn't you come up with this theory to even lift
1: even on game days? Because I think that was the one thing that I learned when I got to meet you later in my career.
3: Like, what's the theory on lifting on game days? So what happens is, you know, your muscles have a tendency to go back to a state that they're comfortable in. So you guys play a lot of games. You know, your schedule is 82 regular season games plus the preseason games plus the plus the playoffs. So you can get all the way up to a hundred. You can always get up up to 100 games, all right? And back then, you played every single game. If you worked out only on non-game day, including all the travel that you had to do, I could never maintain the strength level that you got during the off-season or that you started during the preseason. That's more detrimental to an athlete's ability to stay injury-free when you have a, a constant fluctuation of the strength of a particular muscle, particular joint, a particular ligament, particular tendon. So you had to work out on game day.
0: 1997, uh, game five, NBA finals, the flu game. Is this stomach flu? Is this like the regular flu? Is it a combination of the two? And did you buy the pizza that made him sick?
3: (laughs) I didn't buy the pizza, but I ordered the pizza. Well, actually, you know what, Ernie? i probably say I probably did buy the pizza because I'm, I'm the ones that gave the guys the money at the door. We stayed in Park City. And back then, Park City wasn't what Park City is now. The hotel we stayed in, the room service was done at like 9.30. There was no restaurants <laughs> open. And Michael was hungry. He was like, hey, he goes, all right, so it's my job to find him something to eat. So I'm like, all right, listen, the only thing I can find is a pizza, is a pizza place. He goes, well, order me a pizza. I ordered the pizza. And then about, you know, an hour later, and Charles knows this, listen, a lot of you guys stay under aliases when you travel, but it's so easy to figure out what that alias is. <laughs> they already knew who, who the room was. So literally when I open the door, there's five guys there to deliver one pizza. And they're all <laughs> thinking they're going to be able to come in. And I'm like, no, nah. I'm like, you guys stay right there. So I, I take the pizza <laughs> I, I I give them their money i yeah. and then I close the door and i and I look at this and I tell Michael, man, I got a bad feeling about this, and Michael used a few choice words which I'm not going to share on this po- I'm going to share on this podcast. I put the pizza down, Now, I was in the room, Michael was in the room, George Kohler was in the room, and a couple of security people. He was the only one that ate. nobody else ate Wow. There was no, and then he was perfectly fine up till, up till that time. I mean, there was no symptoms before there was no symptom there. I mean, it was just like, you know, when a flu hits, you start to feel a little bit, you start to feel some achiness or something going on. There was nothing there. I get a call in my room about 3am and it's George. George says, Hey man, come to MJ's room right now. So I come to MJ's room and he's literally curled up on the sofa in a fetal position. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, all right, what's going on? He's giving me all this. He's giving me all the things that's going on. And I'm like, Michael, we got to get you to throw up. I said, we, I I said, I said, that's, that's the start of it. We got to get you to throw up. We got to get some fluids back in your body. And then, you know, by then we, uh, the team physician back then had shown up and he said he was, he was going to play. He goes, just get me standing. I will do the rest. And the only thing I had told Michael, I said, Michael, if you're going to play, or when you're going to play, I said, you got to keep going. I said, the worst thing that can happen is you come out and rest for a long period of time. However Phil normally uses you or whatever, how you're going to play in the game, depending on what the score is and the outcome, you have to stick to that game plan. So, you know,
1: looking at the last dance, there's three transformations that you gave Michael. Number one, when you gave him the awesome body when he after he lost to the Pistons a few years in a row. When he told you he wanted to play baseball, you're like, you know, that's a whole different body set, mindset. And then when he came back after baseball, which of those three
3: things was the hardest for you? The hardest transition for me was making the baseball body. That was a difficult transformation because even though he wasn't new to the sport, so every time the hitting instructor or the throwing coach or whatever would make an adjustment in his swing, the way he threw, the way he stepped, forced me to make an adjustment. So every time they were like, OK, Michael, this is where we want the bat position. There we. This is where we want your wrist position. This is where we want your feet. Three days later, they would make another adjustment, which would make, force me to make another adjustment. I had to constantly make adjustments. In his basketball game, those things were pretty much innate in the system. They were already instinctive. The one thing I did tell him, I was just like, you know, I don't feel there's enough time for your body to go back to doing what it was doing. And everybody got excited when he was in the, um, you know, when he had the double nickel against the Knicks and they were like, oh man, he's back. But somebody, if you knew Michael and you knew his game and you paid attention to the details as I did, you could see the different nuances that they just weren't there. And even though he was still playing at probably 80, 85% better than all the current players during that time, I could still see the nuances that weren't there to allow him to be the Michael Jordan that we knew.
0: Last question for me, Tim, is this. Uh, when What will be the lasting image, the lasting memory you have of training Chuck?
3: I was fortunate enough for him to let me be part of the, the rehab of his quadricep uh, tendon tear. And this was the craziest thing. I remember us going to the health, health club and his leg was in a in an immobilizer. So, you know, he could still hop around on his crutches and so forth. And the gym where we went to had a basketball court. And Charles says, grab me a basketball. I don't even know if he remembers this. I'm like, man, Charles, you, I don't want you on the basketball court. He goes, grab me a basketball. I'm not exaggerating, and I've told this story in the book, Relentless. He took the basketball off of one leg. And remember, the other leg's in an immobilizer. He's just coming off of, I don't know how many weeks, how many weeks of surgeries. He dunked the basketball with two hands off of one leg, not once, 10 times
1: in a row. I wish I had got you early in my career, to be honest with you, you got me at the end. You've been great for our sport, brother, and I love you.
3: You know, just keep doing your thing. Thank you, gentlemen. listen, I respect both of you for not only what you guys have done in your careers, with your families, everything. And you guys ever need anything from me, I'm a phone call away. You know that.
0: We really appreciate it. And just echo what Charles has had to say about the work you've done throughout your career, man. And uh, you've been a real credit.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Hey, coming from YouTube means everything. What a good dude. Yes, sir. And now we go
1: mess it up with TK.
0: Damn. We welcome you back to the steam room. Ernie Johnson, along with Charles Barkley. And it's time for one of our our favorite segments. And judging just from the feedback we get from around the world, um, they love the TK segment too. Tim Kiley, the longtime producer of Inside the NBA, um, and a guy who knows what it's like when a show might be getting a little bit heavy and we've had two guests today. And, uh, so nobody better than Tim Kiley to kind of have a remedy for that.
2: Guess what happened in the break? What, what happened? That rat cap told me that my time was cut because Charles booked
0: two guests. And so now I have no time. What a great sacrifice you've made to the, uh, to the good of the show to say because we had Ahmad Rashad and Tim Grover, there was no time and he just sacrificed his time on the podcast. Hey, way to take a bullet for the team. Yeah. Next week, Ernie, I promise we will have stories from the road. Ooh, I look forward to that stories from that might, that might be a whole podcast right there. No, no question. Don't give away too much. DK can't wait for next week. And thank you for, uh, Thank you for your understanding this week, as we uh, as we've had two guests, a guy who sacrifices his segment because we're short of time. You just don't see it, TK. You're a great man.
1: Wait, great man.
0: We wrap things up for episode number. What is it? Seventeen probably should have checked with Cap our producer before we started but I think it's I think it's episode 17 they said we would never make it man we are we are closing in on 20 episodes of of the world's most second most popular uh, podcast available wherever you get your podcast
1: and see you think about that we up to double digits and Shaq and Kenny shows got canceled like after four or five episodes they both suck on TV
0: Well, I don't know exactly what to say uh, in response to that, aside from it's time for Chuck's answering machine.
1: You've reached Charles
0: Barkley. Leave a message, America. Hey, Chuck and EJ. This is Rocco, and I'm a loyal steamer from Omaha, Nebraska. I want to thank you guys for all the work you're doing, because it gives me stuff, stuff to listen to while I finish up my homework for the school year. My question for Chuck is, if you could have any actor
3: play you in a movie, who would it be?
0: Thanks guys. Oh, thank
1: you, Omaha, Nebraska. What a great question. Uh great question, but I already got the answer because I've said I've been asked that question before. James Earl Jones. You know, one of the best to ever do it. That's who I would love to play me if I ever they made what they're not going to, obviously.
0: What's your favorite James Earl Jones role, Chuckster? What have you seen him in that you or is it just the voice? Is it I'm just I'm not gonna
1: the... say Star Wars because I don't think that counts. Field of Dreams. I was going to say, Field of Dreams would probably, that's really good.
0: That's not your gun. It's a finger.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> funny, you know what's so funny? I was—I so had this conversation on the golf course about Bull Durham. Yeah. We were talking about Kevin Costner, and the guys talking about for the love of the game. I said, that's just all right. Every single time Bull Durham is on, I watch it. I watched it last week. It is amazing.
0: Hit me in the chest, beat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he says this dude is throwing a two-hitter, got ten strikeouts, and he's shaking me off. He tells my man, yeah, I'm, gonna, "I'm gonna throw you a fastball right down the middle." And when you talk about me, say kind. Man.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Hey, yeah. It
1: is awesome. You told
0: him what was coming. Yep. That was awesome. Rocco didn't ask, but uh, probably whoever would play me in, in a in a movie would probably be Ryan Gosling. So anyway. Uh, Ryan Gosling. And we thank all of you who have uh, been calling 404-987-0330. That's the number to Chuck's answering machine, 404-987-0330. You can call us from any point on the globe. You know, this I just build my entire week around this time that we that we do the uh, that's because we got
1: nothing else to do, Ernie.
0: No, no, I do I do have other things to do. Well, I you forgot know, you got twenty two kids, my bad NBA NBA together been doing those been doing the interviews for NBA together and, and actually my my life actually has a little rhythm to it now because I do those Monday and Wednesday, and then I do this on Thursday. But wait, you're bragging about working three hours a week? No, I'm just saying it has a little rhythm to it. Steve Nash the other day. Um, uh, we've had Kareem on. We've had Adam Silver on. I mean, we've had we've had twelve guests on now. Sabrina Ionescu, I had her on the, the show yesterday. Oh man, she's a stud. Next week, I'm having Doc Rivers on. If you could ask Doc Rivers one question. See, I don't do this often, Chuckster. I don't do this often, but I'm asking you. If you had one question to ask Doc Rivers, I'll ask it on on Monday when I talk to him.
1: How good is his handicap right now since the quarantine? Because Doc is actually a good player. Yeah. So I'd like to know what his handicap is How right now. How low is his
0: handicap right now? I'll make sure that I ask that. All right. Hey, uh, Chuckster, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Uh, thank you, brother. Uh, I appreciate you, man. You're going to be teeing it up?
1: Playing against Roy Green tomorrow. Oh. Yep.
0: We'll see you next week with more of the Steam Room. Again, the second most popular podcast in the world in the history of media. There you go. And you were lucky enough just to listen to it. See you all next week.